How many of you are ready to follow Jesus Christ as the uncompromised Lord of your life? Are you sure? Then buckle up, because I have a message that's going to make some of you angry. As we continue in our effort to understand what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, where he said, I tell you the truth, anyone who would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. This is the word of the Lord. These are the words of Jesus who said, if you want to follow me as Lord, not just believe in me as your Savior, but if you're serious about following him as Lord, he said, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. These are not popular words in the American church today. They are not drawing, these words do not draw crowds. These words are causing our church to shrink. Which breaks my heart, but does not release me from the responsibility of bringing you the truth. The Bible clearly points out that not everyone who says they are following Jesus is following Jesus, because it's more than just saying it, isn't it? That this whole aspect of denying ourselves, dying to ourselves, and following Jesus is a very big call. And so we're left with the question, well, how do we know when we're doing it? How do we we know when we're not just saying Jesus is my Savior? In this day and age, how do we know when we're doing it? And so as you know, I, I sought the Lord and came back with seven actionable qualities of a genuine disciple of Jesus. The first four we've been through. We are people of prayer. We can't follow Him if we're not talking with Him. We are people of the Word of God. We are not making excuses for ourselves about why we're not in the Bible. We are people of the Word. He speaks to us. And uh, in the Word, we are people of worship. People who come and release the content of our heart to the Lord, who engage in so many of the facets of worship that I brought to you in that message And we are people of witness, those who bear witness to the things that we have seen and heard in the context of our relationship with Jesus. And today I want to bring you the fifth actionable quality, and it is simply this. It is unity. It is unity. It is being united together as believers. To be an authentic follower of Jesus Christ means that you are living in unified relationships with other, other members of the body of Christ. Done. That you're not trying to do this alone. You're not trying to sort this out in relative isolation. And you're not resisting the call of God on your life to be actively and deeply engaged with the other imperfect believers who are endeavoring to follow Christ as Lord of their lives. Nothing, I don't think, could make this more clear to us than in the example of Jesus and his disciples. How many were there? Twelve disciples in the inner circle. 
The disciples who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry did so not as 12 separate individuals, but they followed him as one unified band of brothers. Even when Jesus sent them out to run missions against the enemy, they were sent out two by two. They were never meant to be alone, ever. Did they have their issues along the way? Have you read the Bible? There were times of competition. There were times of one-upmanship, which is so part of the human nature. And Jesus dealt with it. And Jesus dealt with them and brought them back together as a unified band of brothers. At the end of the day, they followed Jesus as one unified cohort. And they were powerful because of it. The only exception to this was, of course, one lone wolf who acted alone. And his name was Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It should tell us immediately where isolation leads. The Bible clearly says that it is the revealed will of God that absolutely no Christian tries to travel this road alone. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to John chapter 17. We're going to use as our text this morning, verses 20 through 26. It's part of, you know, it's part of uh, a prayer that Jesus prayed, and he prayed it aloud so that we could hear. So I'm going to read John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I would like to invite you to stand with me for the reading of of God's Word today. Again, Jesus is praying. His disciples are listening. He had just finished praying specifically for His disciples, and He moved on to this when He said, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one, I and them, and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Lord, we invite the present ministry of your Holy Spirit to come to empower your word, not just for our understanding in our minds, but to revive our souls, to make us followers of Jesus, your only begotten Son, we pray in his name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. You know, I think it's a real privilege to be able to listen in on one of the prayers of Jesus, don't you? That he prayed it aloud so that we could listen in. What a treasure this is to hear him pray. 
for our sake. And I have a question for you. So Jesus is praying. Do you suppose that Jesus always prayed in perfect accordance with the will of the Father? Yes or no? Yes. So Jesus, probably unlike us, whenever he prayed, he prayed in perfect accordance with the will of the Father. In John 5.19, Jesus said, For the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. So he lived among us in absolute surrender to the will of the Father. Now the Bible tells us in 1 John that if we pray according to the will of God, it says this is the assurance that we have in approaching God. That if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And it says we know that if he hears us, we have what we ask of him. So, as we listen to Jesus pray in perfect accordance with the will of God, and we listen to him pray for this one thing for us, for those who would come after, the, after he preached to the disciples and they followed, and he said, now, I'm not only praying for these 12, but I'm praying for all of those who would ever come according to their message. And what did he pray for? He prayed for unity. At the center of his heart was a prayer that we would find this thing called unity because in his prayer he said, I know, Father, that if you could produce this unity in them the way we have unity in the mystery of the Godhead, that the world will know that that will be the thing that will tell the world that it's real, that it's true. So this was his prayer, is that so that we would have unity. And he was praying in perfect accordance with the will of God. So we can say with all confidence that it is the perfect will of God for every believer to live in unified relationships with other members of the body. Can we not? We can say that with absolute assurance that it is God's will for every single believer to live in unity with other members of the body of Christ, that it's the will of God, that there are now no questions, and that there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions for a person to say, it's okay for me not to do that because. Because it is the will of God that we live in lockstep relationship with one another. With all the problems that that introduces, I totally get that but that there are no exceptions. And so it clearly becomes one of the actionable qualities of an authentic follower of Jesus. That there is no excuse for otherwise. I think part of the thing this tells us that we've got to keep in mind, Americans, is that it's the church that God is saving. It's the church, the body of Christ, that God is saving. God is not saving Tom Paquette. God is saving the church for his glory. That it's not about me. It's not about me having the best stuff in heaven. That's a ridiculous concept of heaven. It's about God refining for himself an eternal people who will enjoy the splendors of heaven for his glory, but that will reflect on him as the church. The church. Now, we come into the church individually, yes, absolutely. We must each respond to the claims of the gospel of Jesus on our lives. But when we do that, 
we are integrated into the life of the church, the capital C church. And it's the church that God is saving. And so there can be no exceptions to people living in disunity. Because the church cannot be divided. Paul says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's only one church. You know, when I preach the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus, which I firmly believe, I'm not preaching the exclusivity of the vineyard. You know that, right? I mean, I hope that that goes without saying. I mean, prepare to gasp. We're not the only ones. It's true. And there are others who love Jesus as passionately as you do and who want to get it right as passionately as you do. And they have all kinds of odd names on their church signs. And they do things differently. I know you don't know this, but not everybody puts the words to the songs on the wall. Some places have books. I know. And they say stuff like, let's turn to number 257, and everybody turns there. There are other places where they love Jesus, and it seems like if you're a guest there, everybody but you knows exactly what to do. So when I say that, I'm talking about the capital church. We are saved into the body of Christ. And so unity, unity becomes such an integral part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus is saving the church. It's not about us. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is about the glory of God. And the unity of believers glorifies God Listen, division does not. Division never glorifies God. Disunity never glorifies God. You know, the example of the the church, early church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, is so clear. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, that's unity, That's that spiritual dynamic of being one in Christ. To the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All, catch this, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved, that people were rushing to become a part of this because they were fulfilling the word of the Lord. Lord, may they be one so that the world will know. Did they have issues? Did the church of Acts have issues? Have they read Acts yet? They had big problems, didn't they? But they dealt with them. They dealt with them under the authority of the Holy Spirit. Division, disunity, division, it's the will of Satan to divide us. It is the will of Satan. It is the plan of Satan to divide us. Think about this. It is the plan of God to unite us. It is the plan of Satan to divide us, to cut us up. To run us apart. 
You know, terrorism in our world today is meant to divide us. It is meant to cut us up. Terrorism is pushing a decision on us as a nation. And the decision is, are we or are we not one nation under God? That's the decision that is being pushed on us by these outside forces. Are we or are we not one nation under God? And there are parties who say, no, we're not. And it's proving to be the ruin of our nation. Which is why it's time for the church, capital C, to come together in the name of Jesus and announce that we are still one nation under God. But as long as we, we fall into the devil's plans to say, to say segmented, disconnected, divided, well, you know those guys over there. Then we fall into the devil's hands. It's the plan of Satan to divide us. It's a very effective strategy for people to keep people from coming to Christ. But Jesus is really clear. There's no provision for trying to do this stuff alone. Jesus is clear from listening to his prayer. Listen, this is the part that's going to tick some of you off. You are outside of the will of God if you are keeping yourself to yourself. You're outside of the will of God if you're keeping yourself to yourself. You're missing the wonders of something called fellowship. And you are living without the incredible power that comes from being in agreement with other brothers. And you are on very dangerous ground. You're on dangerous ground, let me suggest to you, you're on dangerous ground if maybe any one of four things is true. You're on dangerous ground if you cannot readily identify your cluster of close believers. Can you think of a dozen people? Can you think of a a dozen people? Perhaps with whom you meet? Who know your life? They're a cluster. Oh, they're a mess, aren't they? Aren't they almost as messed up as you? Can you think of a cluster? Did the disciples know one another, you suppose? Or did they say for three years, I've never really met Bartholomew. I don't know what goes on in his head. Come on! These are 12 disciples who lived together, who followed Jesus. They knew who each other were. They knew who they were about. And you say, well, there were only 12 of them. How easy would that be to do? Well, what happened when the church suddenly grew to 3,000? How did they respond to that? Acts 2.46, they broke bread in their homes, in their homes, in their homes. They had groups in their homes. I'm feeling something here. They had groups that met in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. Some of you know who your, your people are. You've found your cluster, haven't you? You can readily, I know who my people are. I know who, I, you picture them. You hear their voices. And I commend you for that. Because you are swimming against the tide of culture. You are swimming against the consumeristic tide of culture that says, here's what church, here's when you know you're in a good church. When you can go on Sunday and get just what you want. The music is just the way you like it. The talker says just the things you want to hear, and you get out in an hour. We've blown all of that, haven't we? 
But some of you, I commend you for finding your, your cluster and, and sticking with them. We have groups in this church that have been together for a long time. Approaching now multiple decades in some cases. And I commend you. And I commend you leaders of these groups. Oh my gosh, you guys. You guys who answer a call to lead these groups, these people groups, whether they're home groups or ministry groups or whatever, you guys who pray, you guys who go, oh my gosh, is it the third Wednesday already? You guys who labor over what's going to happen tonight, labor over the direction to take your group, you guys who problem solve with the people in your group, you guys who pray by name for the people in your group and their children, in some cases their children's children, you guys are amazing. And you guys, many of you who have walked through tragedy with your people, that's, that's precious. And I commend you leaders. And uh, those of you who do not see yourselves in this first danger sign, rejoice, don't you? That you've paid the price, you've made the effort to be a part of a cluster where someone knows your name and you know the names and the lives of others. And if you can't readily identify your cluster, and in some cases some of you are between clusters, you're in danger. The second danger sign is you have sin secrets that no one else knows about. You have sin secrets. Can we just go on record as saying everybody in here is a sinner? Are we in general agreement with that? But there are ways to deal with the sin in our lives, yes? And the longer we wait to deal with them, the more difficult they become to deal with. And if we have sin secrets in our lives, we are outside of the will of God. The Bible says in James 5:16, "Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed." Every person in here needs that person in their life, someone they can confess to, and that that person will respond by praying for them so that they may be healed. That is the word of the Lord. Confess your sins to one another. It says and pray for each other so that you may be healed. When I'm talking about this, I'm saying that you have sin secrets that no one else knows about. I mean no one, not everyone. You don't need to tell your whole group about your sin secrets. You don't have to do that. But if you have sin secrets that no one else knows about, I believe you're outside of the will of God for your life. You need to respond to that. You know, in James chapter 1, it tells us what the devil's plan is for isolation. In James chapter 1, it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God isn't tempting you. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, how many of you like me seem to have a resident evil desire that you just isn't, done, isn't dead yet? Anybody? Or is it just me and Rich? Okay. When by his own evil desire, it says, he is dragged away and enticed. This is the plan of Satan, is to isolate you, is to get you alone. Why? Because there's power in two. There's power he can't stand up against. Jesus said, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. How about we stop praying, stop, stop praying for new cars and stop 
start praying in agreement that somebody will be set free from these besetting sins. That would be a, a prayer we could count on God to answer. And so he, it says, by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It is the strategy of the enemy to isolate you and to get you all secret in your sins. Pray for a trusted brother. Pray for a trusted sister to come around you. Someone that you know you could trust to keep that confidence, to hear your sin, hear your confession, and without judgment, pray for you that you'd be healed. Think you're on dangerous ground if you have a broken relationship with a believer that you're not willing to reconcile. Very dangerous ground if you have a broken relationship with a believer that you're not willing to reconcile. Turns out relationships break, don't they? And it stinks, doesn't it? And then you have to do something. Relationships break. And then you have to do something. And Jesus, I don't know how much clearer he could have been on this subject when he said, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Could he have been any clearer? He said, I would rather have you misworshiping me if it meant you're out there being reconciled in a broken relationship. He said, then you can come back and worship me. Why is this so critically important? Well, I think it's because worshiping Jesus outside of the context of relationship leads directly to empty religion. If you come in and go through the motions of worshiping, whether it be singing or reciting liturgy or whatever that particular place would invite you to do to worship. And if you do that without relationships, that is a, that is a slippery slope to empty religion. If you're satisfied to sing these songs and listen to these teachings and remain disconnected, then you've fallen for the biggest lie of all, and that's religion. And Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. Jesus came to start a revolution of love, and you can't love in isolation. So the Bible says clearly, it says, that we must not pretend as though we love God whom we have not seen if we are not willing to love our imperfect brothers whom we have seen. A few points about this being willing to reconcile, I hope you'll find helpful. When I'm talking about unity, when I'm talking about being sure you're willing to reconcile in any broken relationship, This does not mean you're living to make everyone like you. That's dysfunctional approval. That's that's a mess. You know what? Some people aren't going to like you. I know. Catch this. There are some people that you're not going to particularly like. That's not what we're asking for here. We're calling you to love them, and if things break, to be reconciled to them. It doesn't mean you have to be BFFs. But you are called to reconcile. Not everyone is going to like you. I'm living proof of that. You know how Jesus said, here's what Jesus said. He said, beware when all men speak well of you. I'm glad that there is one 
verse in the Bible that I feel I have fulfilled. (laughs) The goal is not to make everyone like you, approve of you, speak well of you. The goal is unity. And unity comes when two people, no matter whether they like one another or not, stop looking at each other and start looking to Jesus. Because they can't each look to Jesus and not be in unity with each other. And if two people are, seem irreparably broken and claim to be believers in Jesus, one or perhaps both of them are not looking to the Savior. They can't be. I once heard that a piano tuner, probably back in the day, you know, before the digital tuning stuff, that in order, like if there were two pianos on stage, in order to tune these pianos to one another, they never started by saying, okay, give me an E-bomb, and then they found that to be an impossible task. But what they did, I have been told, is that they took a single tuning fork, and tuned each piano to the tuning fork, and in tuning them to the tuning fork, they were in perfect tune with one another. Hello? So this does not mean that. And this does not mean that everyone you extend reconciliation to will respond in humble gratitude and acceptance. Not everyone that you you do the work of reconciling with is going to turn to you and go, Oh, I was so hoping you'd come. Thank you. Some of them are going to say, You still suck. But there are some things that you can't control. And, you know, it just means that if you know your brother or sister is holding something against you, that you have taken the initiative to prayerfully offer them your ear and your heart in the hopes of being reconciled. And what happens next with them is really not in your control. But it leads me to the fourth indication that you're on dangerous ground, which is one that always mystifies me, and that you have been offered reconciliation that you are refusing to accept. If someone is offering you their ear, their heart, if someone is offering reconciliation, and you are refusing to accept it, I believe that you are living dangerously outside of the will of God. And I understand your pain. Guess what? It hurts me too. But when we exercise our right to be offended, we are outside of the will of God. I have a right to be offended. What they did. 1 Corinthians 13, among the qualities of love, it says that love is not easily offended. So what do I do? How do I proceed from here? Number one, stop making excuses and deal with it. If you're unwilling to deal with this, it is very likely because of one of two things. I mean, if you're broken in relationship, or if you're not answering the bell here to be in relationship, and you're trying to do this in isolation, I think it's likely because of one of two things, either fear or self. You're either afraid or you're being selfish with yourself. 
You're either afraid of the possibilities that occur when you enter into a relationship, deep relationship, because people mess up, or you're just too self-consumed to do it. Either way, you're not following Jesus. You're not denying yourself, and you're not taking up your courage. It takes courage to do this. I get this. It takes courage to be in this kind of relationship, open relationship with people. It takes courage. One of my favorite authors is Erwin McManus. He wrote The Barbarian Way and about a dozen other books, and somewhere in one of them he said, he said, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the absence of self. When you remove yourself, the rejection, the whatever, from the equation, then you have courage to be in these kind of relationships. So I, th- I think if you're resisting reconciliation, if you're resisting being a part of the fellowship, then you're cutting yourself off from the power of God. And I just don't know what possible excuse you can have for it when it's so clearly the will of God. And the second thing you should do is you should take immediate action, immediate action to get into a relationship. Here in this fellowship, we have a wide variety of ways for you to do this. We have a whole network of things that, as an umbrella, we call life groups. We call them because they're groups that have life. Very good. Among them are the home groups, which are multi-generational groups. Our home group, I was just thinking about it the other day. There are 20 of us in this new group now, and we have representatives from the people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. I think that's pretty fun. And it makes a very, very cool thing. But home groups are meant to be just intergenerational groups of people who come together for this mutual sense of relationship and accountability. But we have men's groups. We have a 5.30 Wednesday morning men's group called Gideon's Army. We have a Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, I suppose, group called Brother to Brother. We have women's groups. The one that comes to my mind is Word for Women. We have... We have groups that meet for people. We have um, a variety of, uh, of groups that are just part of this that create opportunity for you to come in to these kinds of relationships with each other. Get out of isolation. A couple of weeks ago, Karen and I had a rare opportunity to witness something spectacular. And so it was, uh, it was our last home group meeting, and it was the last one before Christmas, so of course we had a party, Right? You know, who's going to read the Bible when you're that close to Christmas, right? And so we, like, played Pictionary and stuff. You know, we just had, we just ate and had a, had a great time together. Twenty people in, in our living room having a great time together. And, and, and the heart, some of them were there for the first time because we're, I think we've only met, like, four times or maybe five times. We're a brand new group. And so what we saw happen on that night was just the breaking down of all kinds of anxieties about who's who in the room and that sort of thing. And these people just coming together in a lot of laughter and a lot of love and a lot of conversation that I know will lead to all kinds of very cool relationships beyond the context of the group. So that was cool. It was brand new love. The next night, we were, our schedule permitted us to accept an invitation from, shall we say, one of the more seasoned home groups in the church, 
and we were able to go and we were able to watch probably another 20 people meet in a place in a community center and eat their food. And these people have been together, many of them, for a really long time because they're really old and about to go home and see Jesus. And so they're like the graduating class home group is who they are. Am I right? Yeah, and, and, and we got to see something, and we just walked away from there just so encouraged that these people also loved each other, and they, they bear with one another, and they have been through some tough times, and some people in the group right now are going through some terribly tough times, but they're there for each other. And we got to see on one night a new love, and on the next night a mature love. And it was a spectacular thing to be able to see. These are opportunities for you. I'd like to tell you men, if you don't already know, that you need to mark your calendars for Saturday, February 27th. Because from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. on that day, we are going to have an Ironman conference. And we are going to revive the Ironman ministry. And that will be six hours, men, that will change your life. And that's open to men from high school on up. And the intention of the Lord is to hand out swords and make you warriors. Some of you are saying, I don't have time for another thing. Exactly. You don't have time to follow Jesus, is what you're saying. That you got your life so full. You're looking at me and saying, I don't really have time to do this stuff. And something's got to go, doesn't it? Something's wrong, isn't it? In John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. By this one thing shall all men know that my disciples. What is it? If you love each other. Beloved, the king has spoken. If we believe the Bible as we say we do, then this is the clear will of God. He has made it perfectly clear that a critical and non-negotiable part of being a true follower of Jesus Christ is to live in intentional and unified relationships with other believers. There can be no exceptions to this. So that if you are making yourself an exception, then you are clearly living outside of the will of God for your life. And if you're making yourself an exception then you need to know that you are absolutely not following Jesus Christ, no matter how many of the other actionable qualities you are doing. And if you are not following Jesus Christ, then I cannot promise you that whatever other road you are on leads to heaven, because Jesus himself, the only begotten Son of God, clearly said that he is the only road that will get you there. I believe the king has spoken, and as our king, we have no other choice in this matter but to obey him. Done. So what are we going to do right now as we come to this place in our service? I think the worst possible thing that we could do would be to do what you're probably thinking we're going to do, which would be to sing some song about how we're going to straighten up and fly right and that by gosh and by golly we're going to start connecting with other people the way the Bible says and then go home and do none of it. So I'm going to do something different this morning in our ministry and response time that has the potential for making some of you very, very uncomfortable. Maybe even angry. But I'm willing to risk this because 
I believe the king has spoken. And it begins by simply asking, now, before you decide to come, I'm going to ask you to come if, and only if, you are presently meaningfully engaged in one of the life groups of this church. Could be a home group, could be Gideon's army, could be, you know, I've made the description. If you are meaningfully engaged now in the life of one of our home groups, I want you to come forward, and only you. Come on up. One, Brian, two, Jay, three, Rich, <laughs> April, you're number four. Some of you are not try- trying to avoid eye contact with me right now. What's up with that? <laughs> Jim, you're number five. Cindy, you're number six. LaRue, you're number seven. I'd like the seven of you to come up here, please. Just make a line this way, kind of looking out that way, straight across here. Now, I need to tell you something, that sometime between 5 and 5.30 this morning, as I was praying to the Lord and asking Him how to do this, <laughs> He showed me something. And what He, saw, what he showed me was this. It was this circle of individual people, which I think represents this room. And there were connections between clusters of them, but there were a lot of people who were disconnected. And that the Holy Spirit was going to come on us now. And I saw this, like, these connective tissues, just just grabbing hold of people who were not connected. Grabbing them out of a life of isolation. And drawing them in to the life that you know. Now you can see that because of the nature of things, there are, it looks as though there are actually more of them out there than there are of you. But in just a moment, you're going to change that. Because what we're going to do is for the next five minutes of ministry, you're going to leave no one left unconnected. You're going, to, you're going to get over whatever shyness you have in the name of Jesus. You're going to get over it because there's too much at stake. And you're going to go, and you're going to introduce yourself to them. You're going to get them. Now, some of them maybe are guests, and they're going, oh, my God, I can't wait to get out of here. So there may be some people who have reasons to say, I'm good, leave me alone, so that's okay. But that would be the exception. Father, I pray anointing on these people who are here. Somehow they have found their way into these groups of imperfect people. And I just pray now, Father, that as they have opportunity to go and extend a word of hospitality to those who are sitting there nervously waiting for this to happen, I just pray, Lord, that you would do the thing that only you can do, that you would make the divine connections, that you would make these divine connections in Jesus' name. You guys got to figure out how to do this. You have to leave no one untouched. Go. You guys stay here.